Hey folks, it's Bama Athreya, your host on The Geek Podcast. You can find us on Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. And this show is now part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. You can discover more than just us by visiting their website at laborradionetwork.org. The Labor Radio Network will help you find your favorite union podcast or radio show, besides this one, of course. What is the Labor Radio Podcast Network? It's a simple network of folks from around the United States. Working people keep raising their voices more and more each day and demanding better treatment from their workplaces and from their elected officials. These voices don't get heard very much on the corporate-controlled media. But the 21st century labor movement has a new way to get its message out there besides traditional media gatekeepers. Uh, Yeah, it's ironic, but we are talking about corporate-controlled social media. But we are trusting you as the gatekeepers. So plug in and get the real news. For a one-stop shop, just visit laborradionetwork.org. On the main page, you'll see a grid of show logos, and you can just click on any one of them and the description and links pop up right there. It's worth going to visit this ever-growing set of voices for labor. BCTGM Voices Project, a podcast highlighting the real people who make up our union, the bakery, confectionery, tobacco workers, and grain millers. I'm Michelle Ellis, Director of Digital Media. I will bring the work of our union to you through monthly interviews with the BCTGM's hardworking leaders, organizers, and everyday members. This is the BCTGM Voices Project. Following an organizing campaign that began last fall and stretched into the beginning of this year, workers at the Hershey facility in Stewart's Draft, Virginia, ultimately voted not to unionize with the BCTGM by a count of 843 to 225. On April 13th, worker committee members Jim Gibson and Janice Taylor joined BCTGM staff to reflect on the campaign. So everybody is aware of, of the Amazon story that happened this week. You know, the workers won their union in Staten Island. And as I'm reading every article that comes across my Facebook feed, I kept thinking about the workers at Hershey. Every story was so similar. You guys endured a lot of the same union busting tactics, but ultimately lost your union vote on March 24th. And we don't like to lose, of course. But as I was speaking to President Shelton this week and John Price, you know, they took the position that we need to look at our losses as much as we look at our wins. And the fact is that the media was very interested in this story. We are the union that came off of three strikes at the end of last year. And I'll talk a little bit in a little while about the couple of viral moments that happened in this organizing drive from that. But it would just be a shame for us to never really address what happened or talk about it ever again and just let you guys go by the wayside. So we're just going to 
get through it today and talk about it and get an update from Janice and Jim. So let's just start by having staff organizers introduce themselves. And we hear from John all the time on our podcast, but John, I'll just go ahead and start with you. I'm John Price. I'm the Director of Organization for the Bakery, Confectionery, Tobacco Workers, and Grain Millers International Union. I've held this position for nearly 10 years. been working with the International for a little over 32. Great. And Jared? I'm Jared Cummings. I'm a business agent and organizer with the International. Uh, 23, going on 24 years with this union. And Adam? Uh, Adam Townsend. BCTGM organizer, business agent, uh, just hired on October uh, with Local 31 in Los Angeles uh, for a long time. <laughs> I'm Janice and Jim. I'll just have you guys introduce yourselves as well. You both uh, work, worked for Hershey. Hershey used to work there. So Janice, go ahead. Hello, I'm Janice Taylor. Okay. And how long were you working at Hershey? 14 years. Okay. And then Jim? Yeah, I'm Jim Gibson. I worked with Hershey's for almost a year. Okay. So I do know that each of you has your own union background story. As I understand, Janice, are you married to someone that is a union officer? Yes. I was employed with a union facility for 23 years, and my husband was our union president there for 14 years. Okay. What union? It was the IUBCWA. Okay, great. And then Jim, I, I understand you're in the police force? Um, retired corrections officer. I did 11 and a half years with the state of California before moving back home here to Virginia, where I finished out a career as a correctional officer. But in California, we had the Correctional Peace Officer Association, and that was my introduction to an awesome union. And at the uh, unit I worked at, I actually had a job store. So I've seen the good things firsthand that the union did. And and what the job stewards did for the workers. So that would make sense why you guys would have this interest and also be so dedicated to the process. So John tells me that Jim Gibson was the fourth person last year to contact us to ask for a union organizing campaign. But Jim, you were actually the first one who arranged a meeting for the workers. Uh, I did. I actually, on the way it got going, I was walking through the plant and there was a lot of discontent at Hershey at the time and and I was walking down the plant and a worker said that we needed a union be in, in the plant and I said what union and they she mentioned Hershey 464 BCTGM and so that curiosity got the best of me so I went home when I got home that night I researched it and called up to a uh, Hershey 464 talked to Mike Saylor and Mike got me in contact with John and and John and I worked on arranging a meeting here in, in Stanton, get some workers together and get this off, off the ground. Okay. John, will you talk about the turnout to that first meeting? It was more than you expected. Yeah. So uh, Jim, first of all, tell me he was at the time, I think he had a little less than six months being there. So I didn't know how many people he actually knew, but it was interesting because the people I talked to prior to Jim contacting us through social media and through phone calls, is they, they were long-term employees, and now I'm hearing from a, a fairly new employee. Um, so I just said, well, if you can get two or three people, maybe a half a dozen at most, let's just start it out with there, and we'll see how much interest is there and what the issues are. And so um, I left Ohio, drove out to uh, Stanton, Virginia, and reserved a small boardroom that wouldn't hold more than 10, 12 people at most. 
Uh, and then Jim got back with me the night before the meeting and he said, I think there's going to be more than six people. You know, we might have like 12 people. And I said, that's fine. We got a boardroom. We'll, we should be all right. And remember, he's just walking around. He's fairly new and he's just telling people, you know, not handing any papers out or anything. And lo and behold, we had 28 people, I believe, showed up to that first meeting. It actually bled out into the breakfast nook at a Holiday Inn. And, um, and when you get that kind of turnout with just word of mouth with someone fairly new, then it piques my interest that something must seriously be going on there besides the uh, calls and, and hits on social media we were getting throughout the year. And so um, uh, we did secure some cards and I normally do that in a first meeting just to lock in jurisdiction and stuff like that. And then we just said, well, look at, let's see if this is, it was mostly all second shift workers. Let's see what first and third shift looks like. And so um, Jim set up a meeting out in the park uh, Stewart's Draft Park, uh, where he had to get a permit and stuff like that. And again, just word of mouth, telling people that, that uh, you know, BCTGM representatives would be out there in a the park. Um, that day, we had close to 300 people show up between all three shifts. So. Wow. Didn't you, did you guys start signing cards then? Right. So, so normally, anybody who's watching this uh, uh, podcast eventually knows the way the BCTGM organizes it's just like the AFL-CIO does. And, and that's, you know, getting a, a proper representation inside the facility, which we call an organizing committee. And we try to get close to 10% on all the different shifts and departments. Um, and then even though the National Labor Relations uh, Board only requires 30% of the unit you petition for, uh, we always seek 65% because we know what type of campaign that the employer will put on and you'll lose card signers that way. Um, we don't normally put those cards out until we have a committee in place and we know exactly how many people work there and what their names are. We, we don't underestimate, which happened to us in this case. But the fact is, with close to 300 people showing up, we couldn't stay under the radar. And what I mean by that is once management finds out that there's an organizing campaign going on in any facility or most of your anti-union employers, they'll immediately hold a mandatory captive audience meeting and threaten workers about signing union authorization cards. You know, they tell them that they're signing their power of attorney over. In this case, they think they said that they were signing a blank check over to the union. Um, and so that immediately puts a damper on the card signing. And so, so with 300 people showing up at the meeting, we knew they were going to hold that meeting fairly quick. So if we had any opportunity of getting some card signed, we should start today. And that's what we did. So, so we went off the normal path that we take. Uh, thinking, all right, that's fine. We'll sign up now. We'll start building up the committee simultaneously, continue to sign cards. So you're saying that the um, plant manager had a meeting with four days after they found out that you were organizing, right? Yeah, and I, I would assume Jim and or Janice were probably both with them first meetings. They could probably tell you firsthand what they said in that meetings about not signing a card. I don't recall a meeting, but I do recall in the huddles, the we have meetings every morning before our shift starts. They would tell us, you know, you're signing a blank check. You're losing your voice if you um, elect to have the union join. And the two captive meetings that they did have, I was on vacation the first one. And the second one was my day, the day I was suspended. Okay. Okay. We'll talk about that here shortly. Jim, do you recall the first meeting? Um, the, our TED meeting was on October 15th and they had a, when we went into it, they had chairs set up and had a little, little cards about the, um, uh, stand with Hershey or something like that. I forget what it said on it. 
and uh, they wanted you to call this this care line, which is union busting line, to uh, answer all questions. And they always reiterated that um, you know we don't need a union here. Um, little issues like that, and like Janice said in the huddles, they would pass out the uh, um, anti-union brochures. And then when you went to these union busting meetings, they were at um, pretty much uh, same thing. Like Janice said, you know, you know, we don't need the union in here, and they try to make the union bad and pretty much propaganda, you know, going to these captive meetings, I learned to learn what propaganda was truly about. You never got the whole story about things. So it was just pretty yeah. much bashing. I also heard that when the LRI, this is a union busting firm, that's very expensive. When they came in, some of the workers thought that they were representatives from the labor board. Yes, they did think it was the labor board and not anti-union people. I don't know if they were misled or just misunderstood. Yeah, that was that was definitely one of the issues. People did think this from the union or from the uh, labor board. So the, the name of the LR is the Labor Relations Institute. And they used to have an N, if I recall, before that. So it was NLRI. And it's purposely named that way. So people think they're talking to the NLRB. And, and I got calls right after that first meeting. Um, uh, with some of our key supporters saying, hey, some of these people coming out of the meeting believe that it's a labor board and they're just being neutral and telling you the pros and cons. So I had to explain to them that, look at it, the labor board is not only neutral, they want laboratory conditions that no coercion whatsoever takes place. So they're certainly not labor board people that are in there. Yeah. Um, and then eventually, um, uh, Jared did a little bit of research on the union busters and we found out tons of information about them. That was one of the things that I didn't actually realize we were also doing because I was reading um, about people in the Amazon drive that was passing out flyers about these people to their coworkers and saying, you know, this is who this person is. This is how much money they make every year in order to convince you to not join a unit. Is this the same thing you were doing, Jared? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, we pulled up all the reports and we found the names of the people that were the two head people that were running it. And uh, you can easily see from their past campaigns how much they make uh, a day plus, you know, all the other benefits they get and whatnot. And basically it tells you on the report exactly what they're getting paid to do. So, I mean, we showed as many people that were willing to see it. That's for sure. Yeah. So at one point, is this during the holidays when you secured this office space, the little house? I know at that point in time, you had pretty good momentum, right, John? Yes. We said is once we got beyond 30%, then we know that we have a real interest here that we would invest in some type of uh, a meeting place for us. Uh, the weather was changing too. Now, keep in mind, we're in Shenandoah Valley the mountains. So, you know, during the day, it'd be nice and warm, but by the time that sun went down, it was freezing. Same with the early morning meetings. And so we reached that goal actually in November. And I believe it was just before Thanksgiving. Uh, and Jim went there because he really took care of that office uh, when we weren't in town. Uh, but it was around that time that we had the office set up. Prior to that, we were meeting folks out in the park and we were getting a steady stream of people coming out uh, up until you know, the, the union busters probably were on their second meeting at that time. Uh, the campaign became a lot more tense that way. Okay. So what happened with COVID? We had an Omicron outbreak. I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll let Jared explain. When I came back in January, 
again, you know, the way we uh, teach people to organize and the right way to do it is to try to get that 65% in interest before you file a petition for an election. Uh, we realized the momentum slowed down extremely more than we thought, you know, due to the Christmas holidays and stuff like that. And so now it, it's a matter of tactics of how long do we stay out there uh, to, to build up a better committee to, uh, you know, secure the 65% cards um, because not every campaign is, is exactly the same. Once in a while, you got to go off script. And in this case too, there was an outbreak of uh, Omicron and, I'll let Jared talk about it because he's the one that kind of said, hey, you know, one of the things we got to look about is who's infected with it. Yeah. So basically what happened was uh, when we when we got down there in January, um, you know, we came up with a game plan and a lot of that involved face to face with the employees. So we had set up meetings. Um, you know, we were going to get in front of the plant. We were going to try and do house calls. I mean, the basic fundamentals of organizing just building those relationships. Unfortunately, then we found out there was an outbreak in the plant of coronavirus. So the concern there was we didn't want to risk, I mean, it, it ended up happening anyway, but the concern was really what happens if our whole staff gets it and it shuts us down for two weeks during a pretty crucial period. So we had to kind of start rethinking our approach there uh, and that changed a lot of things for us and kind of just threw everything off. I mean, it limited our exposure to the employees and and how we could talk to them and how we could approach them. Um, and we just kind of, it kind of put everything to a standstill. And of course, the staff ended up getting it anyway. And then again, for a couple of weeks there, it was just, it was rough. It was, yeah. it was just a rough period. It, it really threw a wrench in everything. So you're, you're thinking this is kind of the moment where we took a turn. It was this, and then and, and Janice got fired, right, in January? Yes. So it was just one thing after another. It, it, it just was a, a bad timing, for sure. It didn't help. And another thing that has to be said, and, and I think everyone knows this, too, statistically, the workers win their union election more times than not when they have a mail-out ballot. And so what we are against is weighing, do we stay to get that 65% or do we roll the dice and do a mail-out ballot? And maybe because you don't get 100% participation in there, the momentum continues to move forward and, and the majority votes yes. And so that, that was the tactic that we struggled with. What, you know, which way do we go here? Um, and, and of course, we, we chose the latter. We decided to roll the dice. In, in this case here, as I explained earlier, though, because of the Omicron uh, how many people were going to be out getting a ballot in their hand. Um, we decided let's go ahead and file a petition and uh, go from there. Uh, and it probably, it was a good thing because around that time they were kind of hassling Janice and Jim and a few other supporters uh, following them around. It's illegal to spy on union activities or even give the impression of surveillance. Um, and, and they were watching them particularly on their breaks. Uh, and I'll let Janice tell the story. Um, on January 12th, our specified breaks are 30 minutes. And on this day, I was like coming back. I was 14 minutes late. I was talking in the locker room about my grandchild and I lost track of time. And when I went back to my line, there was a supervisor there and he asked me where I'd been. And I told him, I didn't lie to him. I told him that I was in the locker room and I lost track of time. And Nothing else was said. 
And then on the weekend after, called me down to his office and had me write exactly why I was late coming back from break. And I did so. And being sarcastic, I said, do I need to clean out my locker? And he laughed and he said, absolutely not. And then on January 31st, I went to my machine and at about 6.15, my manager came and said that I had a meeting in HR at 6.30. I said, okay. So I went to this meeting and they told me that due to my late break and a last chance agreement that I had that is six years old, that um, I was suspended pending further investigation. And then they called me on February 8th and said that I was terminated. Wow. That is the first time that I had ever been disciplined for taking a long break. So with that, keep in mind too, everyone in that facility was told that Janice retired, including Janice. Uh, and management yes. had the audacity to call her up, right? They called you up and said, we miscategorize your uh, leaving us. It's not a termination, it's a retirement. Yes. <laughs> Uh, as you can imagine, once people found out that she actually was fired, they immediately knew how active she was with the union, and that sent a chilling effect throughout the plant. I yes, mean, it did. The momentum really flipped around that time. Yeah. Uh, Janice, you continued to help the, the union campaign after this? I did. I want to talk a little about this social media timeline because it was something that I could see happening, even though I didn't know all these background are going on for me specifically going through our three strikes or four strikes in the last half of last year we came up with a tactic on social media and i was actually eager to find out how this would translate into an organizing campaign and we used the facebook groups and they worked really well through our strikes i mean there were certain points of time where things got contentious but like you have a group of people who are already union supporters. It generally was like a buttoned up thing. I watched your guys's Facebook group and it was just, I realized quickly, like this is a whole different animal. You know, the making these decisions, do we let this person stay in the group and continue to ask these questions or continue to be a little nasty to people or do we get rid of them? And then when you do, you've got people saying the union is now silencing me. And we were getting trolls on the internationals pages from that facility, which we're used to it. But again, it just didn't work the way, of course it didn't, that it did in the strike. So that was one thing. Uh, the other thing that, that happened on social media, I have notes here. There is an account on Twitter called Daily Union Elections. And this person posted on January 19th, a screenshot of the stewards draft Hershey filing for an election and said 1,100 workers at a Hershey plant in Western Virginia are unionizing with BCTGM. So they did have that number wrong, but this thing was posted and I didn't, I never knew about it until it was retweeted 36 times, 42 quote tweets from all the like people that were supporting <laughs> strikes saying like, we support these Hershey workers. This union is relentless, like just cheering us on. And that was the first time that I thought, 
maybe we should be doing more on social media around this organizing campaign because obviously people really care about it. So I took a couple screenshots from that of people just cheering you on, posted them on Instagram. This post immediately went viral. It was like one of the top 10 views for our account on Instagram. So from there, what I did know from our strikes is that people love the artwork that's connected to the campaign. And that's when the logo came and the banners and the social media graphics. And there was a lot of activity going on at that point. We started hearing from, actually, maybe it was Nate Zeff who reached out to More Perfect Union to tell this story. Yes. They were reached out to, but besides that, there were organizers from all over, like sending us messages. And I'm like passing them off to Jerry, like, I don't know if you need this help, but they're sending us messages. That was all really great. But to follow the timeline now, Jared had pointed out, like, it was all really great. But at that point, it was probably a little too late for the social media to try to save the campaign. So with all of that said, though, I want to go back to the Facebook group and talk a little bit about the pros and cons from this, the perspective of the organizers, but also from, from your perspective, Jim and Janice. For one thing, I know, um, Adam, you haven't said much yet, so I'm gonna pull you in. You know, Jim and Adam were trying to monitor what was being said in there and make sure these questions were getting answered, but at a certain point, it just got so big that it was hard to do, right, Adam? Yeah, when I came on in January, there was already 458 people on the Facebook page itself. So between, I, I pulled some stats off the page, and uh, the Facebook page was created October 6th. By November 1st, you had 442 people in the page. I don't know what kind of help John had at that time. I was on the uh, John Denier strike, but to allow to 424 people in in that amount of time, is that's, that's a lot of work. And then to vet those people, make sure they're supporters or non-supporters. I mean, you need a lot of help with that. To date, we had 883 requests to be on the page. And, and somebody during this whole cycle approved 813. So those are just requests and approvals. Now you get into the daily postings and then the comments below and then the comments on the comments and then the comments on the comments. We had the one I just pulled up today. 143 comments on one post on one day. And then we had 82, 69, and 60 on other posts. So to manage all that is it's yeah, it's it's tedious. So so John, um, going back to this having a 10% committee representing every shift, you had said that in a case like this, that's why that's important because they're getting off work at all different times of the day. And you know, handful of organizers cannot all be responsible for answering questions at all times of the day. The, the bottom line, everyone knows it's not an even playing field. Managers never going to allow us to come in and have an open forum or an open debate, which which in this campaign we did request. We, we sent overnight mail uh, requesting an open forum or debate in a neutral area and, and the employer never came back to us. Um, so how do you get the message out? How do you rebut half truths and lies? You have to have people inside that facility. And that's where the committee comes in. Uh, another thing, when you look at a unit this size, when you're looking close to 1,400 people eventually was on the eligibility list, there's not two people in there that know everybody. You, you have to have folks from each shift. And if you can expand on that on each department, 
um, so you know you, the accurate number, you, you know what their issues are, uh, but more importantly, it's for communications. You know, uh, if you have uh, no one on a committee on third shift, and so all third shift is hearing is what the union busters are feeding them, and they're just bombarding them with negative stuff, and no one's rebutting it. Well, you can expect them people are going to vote no because they heard nothing positive about organizing as a union. So, yeah, 10% would be the ideal inside committee, but more importantly, is trying to get representation in all those different departments and shifts. Jared, you had also said, just looking back at this Facebook page, that there was probably a timing issue as well. I mean, you know, again, as technology evolves, so does the way we organize, right? We're going to take advantage of uh, what's available to us. The problem with Facebook is it's hard to connect with people on Facebook. If you don't already have those relationships built, if you haven't met those people and had those conversations, then Facebook can be, in, in, in this kind of a scenario, it can be more harmful than it can be good. You know, in, in an organizing campaign, ideally, Facebook is down the road, way down the road. You can't educate people on Facebook. That should already happen well well before you you know get people involved in a Facebook group. And and when you're going to use a Facebook group like that, that's usually just to pull in the last couple stragglers. Now, on this campaign, we had difficulties because of COVID, and you know over the last few years, it's been difficult. So you've had to use everything at your disposal to try and reach the employees. But social media will will never be able to replace. Uh, getting out there, meeting people, and having those one-on-one -on -one conversations. Like Adam had said, when you're trying to answer questions or educate people on Facebook, there's 30 other people that are going to get on there before you and give their best answer or best guess to what that is. And by the time you're able to give a good response to that, it's buried 60 comments deep. So it just becomes impossible. And of course, you know, you have factions within the plant that are fighting and it's just if we're going to use it for organizing there, there's a there's a timing thing for when it should be used and how it should be utilized um now again like i said you know with covid we had to do what we had to do to get to talk to these people um but yeah it can be face can be detrimental in an organizing campaign if it's not uh administered correctly in the right timing that's for sure yeah. You know, Facebook, just like Jared said, it's all about communications and education, right? You got to be able to educate folks. That means you got to communicate with them. So we try to use every tool we can. Uh, but, but you know, again, we're talking about uh, where workers lost their election here and, and we need to analyze that and understand that. Uh, and so, so these are some of the things that we picked up that we think we can tweak and we have some ideas to move on. Right. Because right, we could talk about this all day. I want to talk about this proposal within the NLRB to make captive audience meeting, the mandatory part of a captive audience meeting, into an unfair labor practice. So that an employer would still be able to have these meetings, you just would not be required to show up to them. This came out last week. I have an article here. As labor unions have long denounced the practice as coercive, rife with misleading or false information, and unfair because the organizers aren't guaranteed the right to hold similar meetings. So I thought I would get some response from you guys, Janice and Jim about that. Did you feel, well, Janice, you said you didn't, you never did get pulled into one, but Jim, does that line up with kind of what you gathered from sitting in those 
Yes, yes, without a doubt, you're forced to go to something like you're a prisoner. And then you get in there and it, um, you get all this misinformation. And personally, what I took out of these meetings was a sense of being just felt violated, you know, uh, and I truly feel like now I understand what propaganda is all about after um, going through these meetings. I think it's very important that it's made illegal. I've actually got involved with my state senators to, to support the PRO Act. And I think, think it's extremely important that we get this legislation through to make it illegal. That's good. Yeah, I did see in this article too, the top Republican on the House Education and Labor Committee slammed this document as hyperpartisan love letter to unions and said, should the NLRB choose to overturn decades of precedent and silence job creators, the consequences would be disastrous, which I had to laugh at that because I know they also had screens running 24 hours a day. You know, they had plenty of opportunities to talk to you guys outside of forcing you to come to a captive audience meetings. So, um, well, thanks for responding on that. It's good to have a worker perspective. Uh, Jim and Janice, you guys been really gracious with the BCTGM organizers in that Facebook group that they, they took a lot of abuse <laughs> at times. Yes. I know that Jared was getting, we're getting text messages from anti-union workers. But Jim, you had written a nice message about how they spent time away from their families to be there and help you guys do this. And mentioned Adam by name, because yes, he lives in California and he traveled across the country to stick around there and talk to people. Is there anything that you guys wanted to add on that point? Yeah, I know I speak for a lot of people. We're just very appreciative of what BCT GM did and the, and the people that traveled across the country or, you know, pick on Adam again, you know, to, to um, come and help us out. You know, and that says a lot right there at the caring. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's been a great, great group of people to work with. And I don't think this union drives over with yet. I expect you folks to be called again. Good. Well, um, I, I just want to return the sentiment to the two of you because, you know, it takes guts to do what you guys did and to continue talking even after you've lost your job. I know that there was harassment going on and people were stressed out. So for you guys to hang in there through it and and keep a good attitude, that was really great. And so just good job to all of you. You know, uh, Michelle, we, we always find it amazing people like Jim and Janice uh, that come up graciously and thank us and, and how appreciative and then they feel bad that the election's over like like we've lost and we got to explain to them i feel bad for you we're in the union already we didn't lose anything this is what we try to explain through the entire campaign that it's the workers voting to be members of the union you're not voting for me jared or adam for god's sakes we're, we already made it we're in the union i'm going to enjoy my union pension and and so we feel more bad for them because they put their heart and soul in it and the majority of people just didn't get it yet. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. All right. Well, thank you guys for doing this today. I think it was really good information. And hopefully we do see you guys again. Let's hope so. Over. Yeah. Not over yet. Yep. No. All right. See you guys. Thank you. Thanks. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. If you found this content valuable, please consider sharing it on your own social media pages and be sure to tag us. We are BCTGM on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For more on the activities of the BCTGM, go to bctgm.org.